Thank you, Brother Jason, and thank you, musicians. Y'all did a great job today. Please turn in your Bible to the Gospel of John. In your Bible, you'll find Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and there's you begin in your New Testament. As I mentioned last Sunday, you have these four Gospels, each one of them, presenting their uh, point of view about the Lord Jesus Christ, His life, His death, and His resurrection. Each one of them. Uh, giving their 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 uh, things that they saw and noticed, not conflicting with each other, but rather complementing one another. So I want you to look with me in John chapter number 20, the Gospel of John. And when you begin to read into the Gospel of John, I think you will notice that he certainly is different than Matthew and Mark and Luke. You know, sometimes when you look through the scriptures, you'll find the word John, and it's not always referring to this man here. Sometimes it's John the Baptist. But this man here is called John the Beloved. Sometimes he's referred to as the other disciple in his own writings. And then sometimes he's referred to as the disciple Jesus loved, which I thought that rather rather unique among a group of 12 unique men. But here sometimes you find the Lord has 70 men that he has chosen out of the multitude, and then sometimes he'd reduce that down to 12. And then sometimes he'd reduce that down to three. Whenever he went up on the Mount of Transfiguration, he brought just three in. And then sometimes it would be just one. And that one that was closest to him was this man who recorded this for us in John 20 called John the Beloved. Now, when John would record something, as Brother Ed mentioned in Sunday school this morning, he had a nickname as the Son of Thunder. Uh, and his brother was like this, very black and white as far as his writings and the way he looked at things, and had the tendency sometimes to be overzealous, and even, uh, you might say, having a judgmental spirit. God worked in his heart, and the Lord used him and his personality in many ways uh, to draw him up close to the Lord. Maybe it's because he needed the most work. Who knows? And sometimes here in John chapter 20, you'll find him making reference in 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, the book of Revelation, and the gospel of John. He wrote all of these. And you'll find in his writings many times, he will let you know right up front, hey, this is a reason that I wrote this. This is why I'm writing this. If you look through the book, I love to read through the book of 1 John. He'll, he'll make statements like, these things write I unto you. And he'll tell you why. One of my favorite verses. He said, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And boy, I'll tell you what, that's a blessing. I appreciate him being black and white about that, being firm about it, that I don't have to guess at it, I don't have to wonder about it, that when I lay my head down at night, if I happen, Brother Lauren, to die in my sleep, I don't have to worry about where I will go. What a blessing to know that you have eternal life. Is it possible to know that? If the Bible is true, it's possible. And I believe the Bible is true. And I believe that God cannot lie. And he keeps his promises. If you look in John 20, if you look there with me at the end of the chapter, verse 30 and 31, would you look there with me if you would? The scripture here says he's letting you know right up front why he's writing these things. He said, and many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. 
See, Jesus hung around about 40 days after his resurrection before his final ascension to heaven. Verse 31 says, he said, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. And when he uses that phrase Christ, he's referring to a, a, an Old Testament word concerning the Messiah, the promises that one would come who would live according to the scriptures, who would die according to the scriptures, who would be raised again according to the scriptures. He says, I want you to believe that Jesus is that man. That Jesus of Nazareth is that man. And he says, and also the Son of God. And that believing you might have life through his name. So he's letting you know right up front. My goal is to convert you. My goal is that you might receive eternal life. My goal here is, in writing this book, is to increase your faith so that you would have enough faith to believe the record that God has left of His Son. Now, I want you to look with me in the first part of John chapter 20. Let's pray. Father, would you bless thy servant as I handle the Word of God, and I'll praise you for it, and may you be glorified in it. In Jesus' precious name, amen. I call this the memoirs of John and the resurrection. John gives us some details the other ones do not. I want you to look with me beginning in chapter uh, chapter 20 and verse number 1. <clears throat> the Bible says, The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early when it was yet dark. Now that would leave most of us out right there, wouldn't it? Hmm? So it's very early, hard to see. She's probably got a candle, some kind of a lamp. She's making her way to the tomb. Because in her mind, she's thinking that his body is still in that tomb. And there's some things that need to be done. It says, it was yet dark, and she came to the sepulcher, and she seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Well, that was a shock to her. And the Bible says, though, then she turns around and she runs and comes to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, that's John, whom Jesus loved, that's John, and said unto them, they have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid him. Peter, therefore, went forth, and that other disciple, meaning John, and came to the sepulcher. So they ran both together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter, and came first to the sepulcher. Now, why John wanted to record that he was faster than Peter, I have no idea. They always argued about who was the best, and who was the first, and who was the mightiest. I guess they, at least one thing he would say, I'm faster than Peter is. But the scripture says in verse 5, And he, stooping down, looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. I always thought that was a little mysterious to me. Why would you just poke your your head in there and not go all the way in and, and, and you see the linen clothes laying there. I don't know. Was it out of respect to Peter? I know not. Verse 6. Then come a Simon Peter following him and went into the sepulcher and seeth the linen clothes lie and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. 
Then went in also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, that's John, and he saw, and look at the next words, and what? He believed. Now, he has not yet seen the risen Christ, but he has seen enough that he is convinced that he has been raised from the dead. But look in verse 9. For as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Now I have to say something right there. That bum fuzzles me. Now that's a southern word for it confuses me. Mark, three chapters before he's crucified, he explains to his men, I'm going to Jerusalem. They're going to take me. They're going to crucify me. I'm going to get up the third day. He told them three chapters in a row. And yet here, John says, yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. But after passing over 40 years, I am convinced of this, that there comes a time that no matter how much Bible you're exposed to and how much scriptures you've been exposed to, you could hear the same scriptures over and over again and yet sit in a service. And in that service, that scripture the light comes on and you see something that you have not seen before and you embrace that scripture and it becomes real to you even though you've heard it since you were in grade school. There is something mysterious about the preaching of the word of God and the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit. The word of God is not a natural book. It is not understood by natural means. You can't just train a guy to read English and understand how to diagram sentences and paragraphs and take the Bible and say, now teach it, and it do what it's supposed to do. The Holy Ghost has to work in your heart. And sometimes you'll come to church and say, you know what, I just didn't get that. And you're being honest. And you might blame it on the preacher that you didn't get it. But let me ask you a question. Would you blame that on Jesus that they didn't get it? Hmm? You understand what I'm saying? Sometimes experience together with the circumstances, the scripture begins to make sense to you in that moment. And Bible says, and let's move on here. Verse 10. <clears throat> then the disciples went, went away again unto their own home. And so what you have here in the scripture here, I see this, uh, their, their observation of what's going on and their contemplation of what they have just seen. But I want to make a comment because my, my focus in preaching these series of messages is about the conversations around the cross. This has been mostly their observation and a conversation between themselves. I would rather focus on the conversations between them and the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to make a comment about verse number 7 because I know some of you have this question in your mind. And some of you probably have heard some stories about this and maybe even have read some things about it. But I want to make a comment about it in verse 7. It says, In the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. And so when these men walked into this tomb, uh, you're basically having the grave clothes that are just simply laying there uh, in whatever area where they laid the body. There was like as if something had just, uh, just kind of absorbed itself and came up out of those grave clothes. But not only that, but attention was given to take that which was on the head and fold it carefully and put it in a different location. Now, 
there's been a there's been a lot of uh, I'm going to say a particular theory that's been propagated on the internet, and a lot of preachers have used this as an illustration on this passage. I've looked at a lot of them this week, and many of them use it, and and it, it sounds good, and it quote might be true. But there's no proof that it's true. And I, and I hate using an illustration that I'm not sure about. But the theory in the Jewish tradition is about a master and his servant. But it's not going to hurt you to think about it when I tell you this. They say that the Jewish master and servant had this relationship. If he went, let's say, for example, the servant is watching his master sit at the table to serve him. And the servant watches that master And when the master is through with his meal, he'll pick his napkin up and he'll wipe his mouth, his beard, his hands, and he'll wad up the napkin and he'll throw it on the table or lay it on the table, which means I'm finished. And then he'll clean the table. The the servant only approaches then to clean the table. But if the master folds the napkin and lays it down on the table, then it means to the servant that I will be back that I will return. And so he leaves it alone. And it is from that theory that they believe that Jesus left that there for those Jewish men to comprehend that the master would be back. And that sounds good, and I like that. And I hope it's true. But there is no proof that that is. Even the Jewish uh, uh, things that you research cannot be verified. So what does it mean? I don't know exactly what it means, but everything that it means, but I am sure about this. The theory that the Roman government and the Jewish elders propagated was is that people came in and stole the body of Jesus. That grave robbers had got in and had taken the body of Jesus. Now, Jesus was was wrapped in these clothes and there were spices, over a hundred pounds of spices and ointments have been placed on that. And so it's almost like a pasty glue almost that begins to absorb into the body over a period of days. And so you, when you, when you think about that, when a grave robber goes in there, he's in a hurry. And man, he's going to take something and he's going to cut that cloth off and he's going to tear it apart and he's going to throw it in every direction. He's going to grab the body and he's going to take off. That's what he's going to do. Or he's going to leave it wrapped. And just take off with wrappings and all. That's what he's going to do. And so when John saw that, he saw something that was not done by a grave robber. He saw something that was done by someone on purpose, in detail, and meticulous. And what he saw was, he saw a body that had come up out of those grave clothes, because those grave clothes were still laying there in their proper place and position, and then he saw that he took the time to fold the napkin and put it over there. And then in his mind, he's saying, this right here is enough for me to know that the Lord Jesus Christ is alive. And so, however the way you look at that, I'm just telling you, John was convinced that it is true that Jesus is alive. How about you? Do you believe that? Well, let's look at something else just that I think is far more important. Verse 11. Those men ran back home. Oh, I say they ran, they left, and they went back home contemplating what they had seen. But there is one who stayed there, and I'm sure some of the other women were still there according to the other Gospels. But there is a lady that stands out, and she's mentioned in all four Gospels above the others, and it's Mary Magdalene. 
And the scriptures, and I'm telling you, these scriptures that I'm fixing to read to you, honestly, they, they move my heart. They, they touch me when I read this. There is something, uh, it, it's just, it is, it is something amazing to me here in her devotion and her love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because this woman had seven devils in her, seven demons in her. Demons are unclean spirits, ungodly spirits, who full of hate and lust and vileness and lewdness. And I don't know what all she went through in her life, but I know that Jesus made a difference in her life, and she has never gotten over this, and she loves him. I'm talking about proper kind of love, a godly kind of love. She sees him as her master and her Lord. And she is thinking that his body is still there. And she is devoted to him, whether he is dead or alive. She is devoted to him. And so the scripture says here in verse number 11, it says, but Mary stood without at the sepulcher weeping. Now the Holy Spirit records her emotions over and over in this passage. She's weeping. The angels ask her why she's weeping. And Jesus asks her why she's weeping. Verse 11 says, But Mary stood without at the sepulcher weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked in the sepulcher. And she see two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Has it ever come to your mind why in the world did those guys show up when the disciples were in there? Hmm? I mean, John and Peter just walked out of there. How come they didn't show up while, while they were in there? Let me know when you find out. Seriously, would you? But it seems to me that the Lord has taken special interest in revealing some things to this woman because of her love and her devotion. And it seems like really that she is just committed to the Son of God. And the Bible says here in verse 13, And they said unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? And she said unto him, because they have taken away my what? My Lord. She didn't say the Lord. She said my Lord. Are you willing to confess with your mouth this morning that Jesus Christ is not only the Lord, but that he is your Lord? He is my Lord. And she says here, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing. Again, I ask you, why didn't he do this to the disciples? He chose not to. And the Bible says, and knew not that it was Jesus. Now keep in mind, it is early in the morning and it is still pretty dim it's not, it's not noonday here. Why she didn't recognize him, I'm not sure, other than the fact that she's not looking directly at him because she turns here in just a moment. She's too over, overcome with grief and sorrow. She is weeping. Verse 15, Jesus said unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? And she, supposing him to be the gardener, said unto him, Sir... If thou had borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. 
Jesus said unto her, I wish you could hear her, hear how he said her name right here. I'm going to tell you something about your Savior. He knows you. He knows you by name. And the Bible says that the, the shepherd, the true shepherd, knows his sheep by name. So I'm not just another grain of sand on the deserts of humanity. My name is written in the Lamb's book of life. My name. He knows my name. The Bible says over in the book of Daniel, heaven knew Daniel's name and they liked him. The scripture says here, and Jesus said unto Mary, he said unto her, Mary, I don't know if it was a sympathetic voice. I don't know if she'd remembered him saying that the way before, but there's something about the way he said her name. Would you like to have seen her face right then? Of she was, she, she's been grieving. She's been weeping. She had been crying and I think sobbing. Jesus said unto her, Mary, and she turned herself and said unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master, like, whoa, wow. And the Bible says here in verse 17, now again, I am amazed at what God is revealing to this woman. You see, your past is not supposed to be a living room. It's supposed to be a classroom. You learn from it, and then you move on. Mary has a past. You think God knows her past? Full of seven devils? And yet it's, she is the one that he reveals some things to that he is not revealing to his men. And she goes and tells them some things. So the scripture says in verse 17, and sometimes some of you fellows, you feel like that God can't speak to you through a woman. That's how hard-headed you are. Now, there is a danger to listen. There's a danger to listening to a woman too much. Adam shouldn't have listened. Abraham shouldn't have listened. But there were other men in the Old Testament who listened to their wives, and as a result, they were delivered from disaster. And here's a woman right here that God has revealed himself to. And maybe you have a godly wife who has good judgment. And great discernment. And maybe from time to time you ought to listen a little bit more than you do. And ladies, I promise you this. If you talk less, when you do talk, it will have greater impact upon your husband. Amen? If you're always trying to tell him something, if you're always trying to tell him what to do, well, there comes a time of where then you switch over to FM and he's on AM. Because he's not listening. And I promise you this, the less you talk, the less you chew on him, the less you try to tell him what to do and say, hey, don't you know better than that? Are you that dumb? I mean, I told you so. Boy, those are bad words for a man to hear. Amen? Even though you told him so. He knows you told him so. He knows. But if you really want God to use you, you have the respect this woman had 
authority. You notice how she respected the, every situation she bumps into, she is re- showing respect. Whether it be the angels, the gardener, she even called the gardener, sir. Did you see that? And then she called him Lord. And when you call Jesus Lord, it makes it a lot easier for you to be able to respect the authorities that God's placed over you. I promise you that. Even when they don't sometimes make good decisions. Did I lose you on that point? Are y'all still with me? You know I'm telling the truth. I'm just saying that God uses women, fellas. Some of you who think that that's not true, not possible, you're being foolish indeed. And you probably have an asset that you're not even taking advantage of that God's placed in your life. Say, honey, have you thought about this? Pray about it. Think about it. And then, fellas, I pray that you'd be the leadership that God, that you'll be the leadership that God wants you to be over her. Amen. Now, look with me in verse 17. Jesus gives her some revelation. And church, I'm going to tell you something. I, I know you don't spend your time during the week reading and studying and meditating for hours on a particular verse. That is a responsibility of your pastor to do that. My responsibility is to feed you and to lead you. You know that's the biblical responsibility. And I've spent a lot of time on this particular verse of Scripture, and I'm going to be honest with you, I am terribly disappointed, terribly disappointed. How many men will simply say, well, this is not what it really means, and then begin to change the King James Bible and the words in this verse, or say that it doesn't belong or that this is not what it says. And I've just told the Lord, I said, Lord, I'm going to be simple-minded, not, not, in, in, not naive, not ignorant but simple in faith and say, Lord, I believe that you gave me a book. I believe you preserved that book. I believe you kept the verses in order. And I'm going to yield myself to what the Scripture says and not try to change the Scriptures to fit what I think it should say. That's what the news does. The news changes facts when it doesn't fit the narrative. Did you know a denomination will take the King James Bible and change the scriptures to fit the narrative of their philosophies and their doctrines? Did you know that? And that's why you need to stick with the book. Stick with the book. So look at verse 17. There is a revelation being given to her. There are some places in the Bible that I call wow verses. This is one of them. Verse 17, Jesus said unto her, Touch me not. Now this is very important because eight days later, he's going to tell Thomas, hey, stick your hand right here, buddy, in my side. Put your hand right here. Feel this. That's eight days later. Verse 17, he said unto her, touch me not. For I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend. I have enough faith just to believe that he meant what he said. He said, I ascend unto my father and your father and to my God and your God. And so she goes. She says, fellas, you should have hung around a little bit longer. Verse 18 says, Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord. If you guys had just hung on a little bit longer, I'm telling you, I saw him. But not only that, but here's what he told me to tell you. 
and that he had spoken these things unto her. What did he speak to her? He said, you go tell him, I'm going to ascend to my father and unto your father and to my God and your God. So what happened right there? What happened right there? Did Jesus immediately go into heaven? And then the same day in verse number 19, notice how the Holy Ghost has given us the time period of that day. Then the same day at evening. Now, first of all, it was early in the morning before daylight. Now it's in the evening, and this is on a Sunday, by the way, the first day of the week. And so something has happened between sunrise and sunset that Jesus has done. He has ascended to heaven. Why would he do that? Why? would He's able to walk out of grave clothes. He's able to walk through walls. He's able to appear and disappear. He is able to do these things, so we know he's not limited by space and time as far as his abilities. But why would he go, why would he ascend to heaven when we know that later on they're going to see him go up into the clouds? But here, he's taking care of business. Okay? And I need you to understand this because it is, it is very important. Now, in my research, when he said, do not touch me yet, and then verse number 27, he says, you can, Now, according to Dr. Eli Lazorkin Eisenberg, who teaches at the Israeli Bible Center, a Bible-believing Jew, a born-again Jew, he tries to help Christians understand some things about the Jewish thought life and their understanding of the... Now, when you read the Old Testament, you know that is Jewish. You know, we're talking about the tabernacle. We're talking about the sacrifices. We're talking about the ordinances. We're talking about the washings. We're talking about the high priest. We're talking about Levitical priesthood. All of that sometimes it just goes over our head a little bit. And so he tries to help us understand this. And so he says that on the day of atonement, the, the, the high priest is required to do some things. Now, you got to keep in mind, Jesus said that, that, uh, that he was the Lamb of God and he died on Passover. And so on the Day of Atonement, the day of Passover, the requirement of the high priest was to take the blood of that lamb and place it upon the mercy seat in what is referred to as the Holy of Holies. Now, the high priest was the only one allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. I need to show you something there if you would, please. We need to read this, okay, to help you to understand the significance of what took place right here. Hebrews chapter number 9. I am not trying to turn this into a classroom this morning, but I have got to show you something in the Scriptures, and I pray the Holy Ghost will open your eyes and help you to understand this and to appreciate the Lord Jesus Christ. For our children's sake... I need you to understand something about God. God chose Abraham, and then out of Abraham, God gave him a son called Isaac, and then a son called Jacob. Out of Jacob came 12 tribes. That became the nation of Israel. God says, I'm going to manifest myself through these people. These are my people. I'm going to give them some things. So Moses went up on the mountaintop for 40 days, and God gave him details. He said, I want you to build something exactly the way I tell you to. 
And so he came back down, gave these men their responsibilities, and they began to build the tabernacle. The tabernacle had specific requirements. They had different layers of how you could approach it. But the bottom line was it was like a rectangular shape, um, you know, facility. And inside of it was, was where some people could go. And then a little bit further, some other people could go. But then when you got real close to what is called the Holy of Holies, only the high priest could go past this, this veil. And inside there was where the Ark of the Covenant was and the mercy seat. And that's where the blood of the Lamb would be applied. And then God would come down and He would say, Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to forgive you all for another year. Now basically, that was a day of atonement. And so all of that, here's what the Lord said. You don't have to understand all of that. You just need to understand this. Is that all of that stuff, when you look at a picture of the tabernacle in the wilderness, is that the book of Hebrews says all that stuff right there was a shadow of what it's like in heaven. If you want to know what's in heaven, he says that right there is an earthly image of what I actually have going on in heaven. Now, that blows my mind. It really does. Because, you know, because Hollywood, that's not what Hollywood says heaven looks like. That's not what it looks like. But that, that temple and that tabernacle, there is one in heaven, and he gave an image of it on earth. And what was going on through the Jewish people was an example of what Jesus was going to accomplish on the cross and after his resurrection. That's why he spent all those days saying, you see right here in the scriptures, the prophets, the Psalms, this, all this fulfills what I am and who I am. So, children, best I can tell you is that Jesus Christ died on the cross as the Lamb of God. That's what he did. Okay, and, and he did that when he said it is finished. Okay, but now he's no longer that sacrifice. Now he's taking the role of the high priest. And the high priest is going to take that blood and he's going to take that blood to the mercy seat, but he's not going to the mercy seat that hands have built, that man has built at the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. You know why? While Jesus hung on the cross, the earth began to shake. And the sun turned dark. And when Jesus cried out, It is finished! The Bible says that the veil that was in front of the Holy of Holies, this huge curtain that was thick and tall and wide, was ripped from the top to the bottom. The the Holy Ghost signifying that the way into the Holy of Holies has now changed. And that the old priesthood was over with because there's a true priest that is going to take the true blood into heaven and sprinkle that blood on the true mercy seat of God. So, let's look in Hebrews 9 with me, please. Now, the reason I gave you the... Let me finish what I said about the the uh, what Dr. Eli said. He said that the high priest... When he is, you know, between this sacrifice of the Lamb of God and it being, and that blood being taken offered on the mercy seat, that it was forbidden for him to come in contact with anything, thus rendering him ceremonially unclean. And this would disqualify him from entering into God's presence. Now, Jesus, the ultimate, supreme, superior, great high priest, was about to enter into the ministry uh, as a high priest into the heavenly tabernacle right there in John chapter 20. 
in the verse that we just read. He is not going to wait 40 days to take that blood. He's taking it the day he got up out of the grave. All right? And before anybody touched him, before he became defiled. Hebrews 9 tells us a little bit about this, okay? Bear with me. Y'all still with me? Okay, bear with me now, if you would, please. You'll notice here, and uh, boy, this is so good. And, and Paul admits in chapter 9, verse number 1, he talks about all the different instruments about the sanctuary and the, co- and, the, and the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. And he says in verse 5, And over it the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly. He's now, he said, Now when these things were thus ordained, talking about the Old Testament, the priest went always into the first tabernacle accomplishing the service of God. But under the second went the high priest alone. Once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of his people. Verse 9 says, the Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was, and there's that phrase, not yet, made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure For the time then present, a figure, a shadow, an image of the real thing, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect, as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. So obviously this stuff was coming to an end. It served its purpose. It was a shadow. It was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Look in verse 11. But Christ being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle. Not made with hands. That is to say, not of this building and neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood. Hebrews is letting you know Jesus did not was not concerned about that holy of holies that was behind that rent veil in the temple in Jerusalem. He was concerned about the temple that was up there and the holy of holies that was up there and he was about to take his own blood there and sprinkle it in on the mercy seat in heaven. And the Bible says here, that's why when we talk about the blood of Christ and we talk about the propitiation for our sins... We're talking about him being the sacrifice, but also being the supreme high priest to be able to take that to heaven. And the Bible says here uh, in verse number 12, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his what? His own blood. He entered once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. And so let's go back to John 20. Now, we could spend the whole next couple of Sundays just on Hebrews chapter number 9. But I think you get the picture here, don't you? Here in John chapter 20, when he says, hey, don't touch me. And by the way, when you read Exodus 29, verses 30 through 35, you'll find that they were to remain untouched and unclean for a period of seven to eight days. And that's why on the eighth day he said, you can touch me. You can touch me. So... 
Let's go back to John chapter number 20. I want you to believe this about the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're running out of time and I've got a whole lot more to say, but not a whole lot of time to say it this morning. But I do want you to remember this in our closing this morning. And when Jesus said in verse 17, and he's telling this to Mary. I don't think Mary realizes all that she's being told here. And she goes and tells these guys. John 19.30 says that Jesus was the offering when he said it is finished. You agree with that? Did that fulfill Old Testament scripture? Well, how about Isaiah when he said, The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then he said, same chapter, Thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. This is why you need to understand all religions are not the same. It is greatly, highly offensive to God for you to approach him with your works, with your goodness, And what you perceive to be your righteousness, it is completely offensive to him when he has paid the ultimate price to cleanse you from all your sins and iniquities. You have nothing to offer that will wash away your sins. You have nothing to bring to God that will save you from your sins. God has paid the ultimate price And the Bible says this also in Isaiah 53, for he shall bear their iniquities. Peter said, who in his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. He hath made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Do you understand? This is a very significant verse of Scripture. You can't just read over it and pass over it. John 20, 17 says now he's the high priest. The Jewish temple was the shadow of what is in heaven. The high priest was a shadow of the Lord Jesus Christ. The lamb that was sacrificed was an image of the Son of God. And now the veil into the Holy of Holies has been ripped apart, that on planet earth, and the one in heaven has been made open to us through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, I do not have to have a go-between. I have one. And there is one mediator between God and man, and it is the man, Christ Jesus our Lord. Mary is not co-mediatrix with the Lord Jesus Christ. The saints who have gone on before us, whom some have, quote, sanctified and made them really just almost little gods, they have no power to do for me what Jesus Christ alone can do in Christ alone in Christ alone by faith alone and by grace alone and so here the earthly had been done the Lamb of God now the heavenly needed to be done the high priest took his blood and my friend Listen, there's so much more in this passage. We'll pick it up another time. But let's stop right there. But I do want to say this to you. That you need to understand, John said, I wrote this so that you would believe the record God has left of his son. Do you? 
The scripture says, He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. And he says that, To as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe upon his name. And I love this passage. He says, God hath given to us eternal life, and this life, talking about eternal life, this life is in his Son. Do I have eternal life? Yes, I do. John said, these things I wrote unto you that you may know that you have eternal life. Do you know today that you have eternal life? What are you trusting in? Hmm? If you died today and you stood before God and he said, why, why, why should I let you into heaven? What would your answer be? I've heard all kinds of answers. Well, I, you know, I'm really, I feel like my good outweighed my bad, Brother Roger. What you don't understand is you used the wrong scales. And your bad far outweighs exceedingly your good. Some of you are trusting in the fact that your parents are Christians. That doesn't make you one. Some of you are trusting in church membership. That comes after you're born again, not before. I ask you this morning, do you have life? Do you have eternal life? And are you trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ? Let's stand together, please, for just a moment.